Hello, and welcome back to the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. This week, we're joined by Professor Emily West, resident at the University of Reading. Professor West will be discussing her paper, Enslaved Women and the Duality of Feeding in the Antebellum South, which explores how spaces of feeding were not only sites of violence, control and conflict, but potentially offered the enslaved pleasure and autonomy too. Professor West has written extensively on slavery, and particularly how it was experienced by the enslaved on a personal level. A 2017 piece on the practice of wet nursing, for example, exemplifies her focus on the intimate and often obscured elements of plantation regimes. As well, Professor West is the current chair of Branch, an association of British-American 19th century historians, which I'd encourage anyone in the field to join. Joining the conversation too is Meg Roberts, a PhD candidate at the University of Cambridge. Meg researches the lives, networks and practices of caregivers during the American Revolutionary War. Approaching the war as a health crisis, her research centres precariously employed, indentured and enslaved caregivers to explore the role of coerced care labour that underpinned the survival of sick and wounded revolutionary soldiers. Both Meg and Professor West look toward the past with humanity and compassion, and I'm thankful that they've taken the time to join the podcast and explore how we can apply those concepts to historical research. Thanks for tuning in, and I'm your host, Hugh Wood, a PhD candidate at Sydney Sussex College. So, hello and welcome back to the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. It is the 1st of March. It's a grey day in Cambridge, though we are doing it remotely for the first time. Um, So today we are joined by Emily West and Meg Roberts. Um, So Emily is going to be talking about her paper, Enslaved Women and the Duality of Feeding in the Antebellum South. Um, So Emily, if you would just want to jump in here, that'd be brilliant, and tell everybody what's going on, where we are in the world, um, what's the story you'd like to tell, and what is the duality of feeding? Thank you so much, Hugh, and thanks for the invitation. And I'm also apologising to everyone for the state of my voice because I've come down with a a bit of a cold, but hopefully everyone can hear me okay. So my project on um, enslaved women and the duality of feeding, um, I think it it both draws out of and extends um, some of my prior areas of research. I've been really interested in the past in um, the lives of enslaved families and in the the family structures that they resided in, um, in enslaved motherhood and how women sought to raise their children. And from that, I ended up writing what ended up being a fairly um, discreet project on enslaved women who had to labour as wet nurses, um, mostly feeding but not exclusively so, feeding the white infants of um, enslaving women. And that got me interested more widely, I think, in thinking perhaps more theoretically about the labour involved in care, which we know is something that women have done across time and space in all different contexts, especially um, more senior women have tended to look after younger children in, in all sorts of different realms. And we know as well that this um, labour has been undervalued by societies across time and space. I mean, sorry, this is a, a sort of um, a, a, you know, totally different example, but just think, for example, about the recent pandemic, you know, and the additional labour that this um, that this brought upon women, um, not least in terms of um, childcare provision. Um, Uh, when schools were closed, it tended to be women who were the ones who performed this sort of labour. So in all sorts of contexts then, you know, um, the labour of care is gendered, um, and yet yet it's absolutely crucial. 
So from this wet nursing article, I started to become more interested in thinking about um, women who fed not just... Um, sorry, my printer's just start, started beating for some, some strange reason. Oh, the perils of being at home again. But, um, but yeah, the, um, yeah, I became interested in women who fed other um, other enslaved people, thinking um, firstly about women who... Um, women feeding infants, such as wet nursing, for example, but then also thinking about women feeding older children and then women feeding the enslaved as well. And um, I do, just want to do a little shout out, if I can, to the work of Diana Payton, who's been really, really foundational here in thinking through some of these theoretical implications um, of, um, of women's care um, in the context of um, enslaved women in the Caribbean islands. Um, so I feel I need to mention her here. So, so yeah, I'm interested in the United States and I'm interested in um, then thinking about the regime as a whole and thinking about how enslavers and um, enslaved women really had um, sort of, um, uh, really had feeding and food provisioning as a site of conflict between them. Um, because um, on the one hand, um, enslavers and this is where my work draws upon perhaps some of the more recent literature on slavery and capitalism. Enslavers obviously wanted to feed people cheaply, quickly, efficiently. They needed people healthy enough to survive um, and healthy enough to reproduce. Um, on the other hand, um, what we see, and this is where the, the idea of the duality of feeding comes in here, is that um, women had relationships with food that are both kind of negative and positive in some ways. Um, I'm trying to avoid the use of the word complex because I, I want to try and break that down a bit better. Um, but, you know, on, on the one hand, there's obviously a great pleasure to be had in preparing food um, independently, autonomously, in cooking food for your family, preparing a wide variety of meals, eating different types of food. This is why I really um, I'm not interested in thinking of the notion of were people well fed cal calorifically, because that is so dull to me and it doesn't really address questions of um, of the variety of food, the pleasure of food, the meanings of food. Um, and it also ends up with these quite sort of dated tropes about good enslavers and bad enslavers, which um, I find really, really problematic as well. So so yeah, I'm trying to look at some of the ways in which um, food is a source of pleasure. And in, again, I'm in, inspired here by other authors, um, you know, recent contemporary feminists such as Lolu Olufemi um, wrote about um, the sort of the, the multiple meanings of food for, for, for women in, in modern contexts. And I'm sort of thinking about how we might think about this under slavery. Because at the same time that um, cooking and preparing food for loved ones can be um, a source of great joy, it's also, um, we also know that it can um, also just be a, a really onerous um, work for women as well. You know, there's, there's a labour involved in that care, you know, and, and as well as that, you know, sometimes it can just be really boring and monotonous, especially, for example, when it comes to feeding um, children. And then when you add in the context of slavery to all this as well, you know, it means it means that, you know, obviously that the lives of enslaved women are extremely, extremely difficult here because they're often tasked, um, you know, that they have to ensure that their own um, children, whether they're sort of um, um, biological children or whether they're performing um, what Patricia Hill Collins called other mothering 
um, in caring for others. They had to work really hard to, to ensure that um, children were cared for, were fed. Um, but, but then, you know, the duality is there's also this source of pleasure, I guess, that, that comes from food, which is important mm -hmm. as well. Brilliant. Yeah. So Meg, if you just want to jump in there, that'd be brilliant. Yeah, of course. Um, so in what you were just saying and in, in the seminar, um, you talked a bit about the sort of materiality of, of this feeding. Um, and I was just wondering if just to start us off, you could um, give us a bit more of an idea of the kind of spaces that this these different types of feeding were um, were happening in. Um, you've talked about the, the fire, uh, like the um, a, a central room keeping the fire going and the kitchen and the really vivid um, idea of, of troughs and, and children eating from from troughs outside. And I was wondering if you could kind of expand on on that kind of spatial um uh, spatial side of your research. Okay, yeah, thank you so much. Um, that's a really interesting question. Yeah, I think um, enslavers attempted to carve out discrete spaces for eating under which they um, would have control of the enslaved. And um, at the same time, though, simultaneously, they didn't want these spaces to be too close um, to where they were so typically they'd be um they'd be situated you know around the sort of um the back of the so-called big house the back of the plantation mansion um in the quarters um some enslavers you know, they'd have separate kitchens for where food was prepared for white enslaving families and for where food was pre prepared for the enslaved obviously with food being prepared for the enslaved being the, um, the, the, the I guess, the less technically advanced, the, the inferior, in terms of inferior qualities, etc. Sometimes it would just literally just be you know, a fire with um, with a large pot on that one woman was designated in charge of. So in a way, you know, that they're, they're liminal spaces in between um, the lives of the enslavers and the lives of the enslaved. Yeah, and there's some, there's some really um, interesting evidence, especially, I think, from, um, from, um, formerly enslaved people here um, about, for example, um, the fact that one woman would typically be tasked with being responsible for um, the plantation fire. And most of my evidence does come from plantations. So the fact that women were responsible for having a fire in their cabins, for keeping this fire going at all times, and um, you know, even in the heat of summer, um, this would be really difficult, but then it would be her fire that would then be used by enslavers for lighting fires in the kitchen where food's pre um, prepared for the plantation for the enslaving family and also for um, heating all other fires in the plantation house as well. And then, yeah, um, the story of children in the eating from troughs is one of the, I think, the really, really most tragic stories we get out of this. And we see this in um, both published autobiographies by the enslaved and formerly enslaved and also as well with um, I, I think maybe some of this then fed into a collective memory because um, I think it's the Works Progress Administration or um, WPA or FWP um, choose your acronym um, interviews of the 1930s that really give us the most graphic detail of um, children eating out of troughs communal style and so I, I, the language here is so significant because, um, you know, essentially they're referring to just, you know, a, a large, large, long dish where they would all eat out of communally. And this makes sense as well for the women who've got the really difficult labour of feeding these children simultaneously. Um, 
So, so it's it, it's a very sort of difficult setup for them. But I think that there's something in this language of the WPA respondents, um, whereby what they're doing is they're actually conveying collectively some of the harshness in a of the regime in a way that they're um, that they're mostly white, mostly younger interviewers in the racially segregated world of the 1930s wouldn't find challenging or unpalatable. Um, they wouldn't find it too difficult. They didn't upset accepted racial sensibilities by talking about, about their feeding in this way. And yet, um, from the testimony itself, for example, when you hear about um, children fighting in the trough, um, children, um, you know, blood sometimes um, from fights being in the trough, dirty hands, dirty feet, perhaps even dirty bottoms, all, all ending up in the trough. You know, you can you can see just how difficult this experience must have been for them. Mm. Yeah, so um, I will jump in here and ask a bit about this other mothering. Um, so you've been discussing and describing experiences of motherhood that aren't um, familial for enslaved women. So how do conceptions of feeding differ for enslaved women in terms of their own children, the children of other enslaved people, white children or adults in um, slave societies? Oh, yeah, that's a, yeah. Thank you for that. That's a, a good question. I mean, um, essentially, I, I think that um, I think that enslaved women themselves don't necessarily differentiate between their own biological children and um, other enslaved women's children when it comes to the labour of care. Um, harking back to wet nursing, we know, for example, that um, although evidence is scant, that examples of you know informal patterns of milk sharing, um, I think they're much more common than we um, than we have evidence for necessarily. Um, women have tended to again to do this across time and space. Um, so you know where there's a hungry infant and a mother is. Um, unable to feed either because she's not there working or she might have trouble um, you know, of generating um, you know, enough milk for sustenance for her child, then I think women do help each other. So I, I wouldn't necessarily um, draw a really harsh distinction between the sort of the, um, the other mothering informally of other enslaved children and the biological children of enslaved women. I mean, I think where it gets more difficult is obviously where you have enslaved women um, forced to other mother white infants. And of course, there's, there's such an irony here because enslavers really like to sort of decry and belittle um, enslaved women as being you know, incompetent mothers. They frequently write about how that, you know, they, um, they don't care well for their children and yet simultaneously they're perfectly happy to leave their enslaved their own children in the hands of enslaved women to raise so again yeah well it's just one of the sort of juxtapositions of, of that um of the the ideologies of that racist regime but um i think what i'm finding interesting as, as i'm developing my research is that um we seem to have patterns whereby i and I think this is the, the most common pattern by the late antebellum era, and this is um, the context within which most of my research takes place because of the evidential base I've got, is that, you know, mostly um, enslavers um, dictated that ens enslaved women would feed people communally at breakfast time, and then also at... Um, well, I always go to say lunch, but what people call dinner, it's a it's a thing from in northern England as well, you know, the the, the dinner at noon or early afternoon. 
Um, whereas at supper time in the evenings, mostly by the late antebellum era, what, what tends to happen is that um, enslavers um, permit, and they very much frame this in the language and the rhetoric of privilege, um, they permit enslaved people to eat um, on their own in familiar groupings in the quarters, so around their cabins. And I haven't found a lot of evidence of this, but again, I, my hunch is that um, it's, it's, it's probably more common than we have evidence for, is that actually um, enslaved people do practice more informal forms of communal eating themselves in the quarters than we might think. Um, you know, um, I think sort of Western notions of households sometimes aren't that helpful. So I've been quite interested in anthropological and sociological research about um, extended family living, um, compound living, about the concept of a hearthhold um, within, and there might be multiple households within a, you know, a hearthhold where they share one half. Women um, cook together in this way. So I think I think that there are forms of, of communal eating in this context, but, but um, mostly, I guess, and importantly, is the point that um, this arises from enslaved people's own volition, their own autonomy. It's away from the eyes of enslavers, um, and it obviously gives them chance to to socialise, to network, to chat. Um, you know, so this is an important time of day for them, despite the exhaustion and despite the labour of preparing this food, which is thus far, I think, you know, nearly always done by women. Um, you've just hinted at, at this in um, your discussion of uh, other mothering and also in your previous work about wet nursing. Um, you've explored the commodification of um, enslaved women's reproductive capabilities. Uh, and I was wondering if you could expand on how uh, food is understood um, both by enslaved people and by their enslavers at a, as a commodity in itself or a, res a resource in itself. Um, how does it relate to the uh commodities that plantations were producing um so the the food that was being uh given to enslaved or prepared for enslaved people and for um the families uh in the houses it, whether that takes the form of breast milk um harvested food um yeah anything like that yeah thank you so much um yeah i'll i'll start with um with the breast milk first um because that's probably the most sort of, um, uh, simplest element but yeah absolutely breast you know enslaved women's breast milk is a, a commodity um and it, and stephanie jones rogers obviously writes about this in in terms of the markets for wet nursing the advertisements for networks what the advertisements for wet nurses that we see across the south um, and I think for me, what's interesting here is that, you know, it, it's the real intersection of women's um, reproductive labour because women have to um, be able to reproduce to make breast milk um, and and obviously and their labour, um, you know, as commodities, as um, as possessions for enslavers. Um, in, in terms of wider um, feeding and the commodification of food, what I find quite interesting here is that obviously, you know, a lot of plantations, especially larger ones, um, again, there's a methodological bias here because it's the larger plantations for which we have most evidence. And um, the larger plantations, obviously, you know, most food is um, is grown or uh, livestock are raised on plantations. And um, again, enslaved, the, the sort of the, the spatial arrangements of all this is, is interesting and, and racist because enslavers tend to divide 
what they term enslaved peoples, um, enslaved people's gardens where crops will be grown and then their own, um, which they deem more important gardens where there'll be much more exotic um, crops grown, a wider variety of, of produce. We see the most um, really sort of strong example of this, of course, on Thomas Jefferson's Monticello where his own garden on Mulberry Row is devoted to, you know, really experimentation, you know, all these different types of crops, um, experimenting with a wide variety of foodstuffs, which then you know, his skilled cooks and chefs prepare into exciting meals. But the food that's grown for enslaved people is, um, you know, it, it tends to be, in, I guess in a sort of modern language, we'd call crap, cash crops, you know, um, monotonous, um, dull, um, cheap, easy food. So you get a lot of, you know, um, carbohydrate, carbohydrates, wheat, grains. Um, and interestingly, um, in the 19th century, um, people um, in the antebellum South, that any, any least they regarded um, sweet potatoes as inferior to white potatoes. So in the enslaved people's garden, you'd get sweet potatoes grown. And that was an everyday foodstuff because they could simply be thrown in the ashes on fires and cooked cheaply and easily. Whereas white potatoes are regarded, as, you know, as, or sometimes Irish potatoes that, as they're known. They're seen as sort of you know, rather exotic. And so they were um, a privileged food for, for, um, for enslavers only. So you see, you see all sorts of sort of interesting differences here. And then I think, you know, again, sort of, um, I guess, and think, thinking about gender rather than women per se, obviously you've got the important role that's played by men and boys who are often permitted to um, supplement family diets um, by going out hunting and fishing. Um, a lot of enslavers allow this. And of course, you know, again, it's a, it's a, it has a duality here because it, it, it enables the enslavers to invest less of, of their own money in provisioning for enslaved people and because um, these men and boys in bringing home um, food that they've hunted or fished, you know, they're essentially supplementing their family diets. And we can say exactly the same thing about, you know, the um, where enslavers permit gardens as well around cabins. These seem mostly to have been familial based and families would raise the gardens together. Um, but, you know, they're an important way of... Um, of enslavers literally, you know, being able to provide less for the enslaved people because they know that they're supplementing um, their own food. At the same time, the duality here is, of course, that, you know, tending a garden, you know, raising your own produce, having your own livestock can be, you know, a, a source of a source of pleasure, um, you know, and a source of independence. So, yeah, they're, they're quite sort of difficult issues, I think, to, to grapple with some of the meanings here, but I think they can be multiple. Absolutely. So Meg, I was just wondering whether you wanted to get into the questions about methods and so on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, I study caregiving in the American Revolution and the labour involved in, in care, in, including feeding, but also laundry and toileting and stuff like that. Um, so I have found your work so engaging um, for um, for similar reasons. And I was wondering if you could talk to uh, how you interpret the value of examining these kind of everyday mundane laboring experiences like what's the historical significance of of uh the mundane you described boring and monotonous labor of feeding um the small scale labor tasks like what what's the value what can we get out of this okay thanks i think um fundamentally um i feel that um 
many people's lives are boring, mundane, monotonous. That is the way people lived. And my own background, um, many years ago, my um, my degree and my PhD was in um, in a department of economic and social history. So it, it it's been fairly natural to me to devote myself to this type of history rather than um, rather than history from different perspectives. And um, yeah, I sometimes feel that in thinking about the, you know, for example, the the labour of care. Um, gendered labour, um, the everyday, the monotonous, you know, I, I feel sometimes that it, it doesn't get the credence it deserves because gatekeepers of history have assumed that different types of history are more important. And yet really we're talking about the way in which most people live their lives. Um, so I do feel quite strongly that, you know, that it's important we we get this this history out there and we give yeah, we, we, we give credence to these women. In in the talk, I spent quite a long time talking about this um, woman I found called Mariah. And um, obviously, you know, she um, she's an enslaved woman. She was forced to travel from Virginia to Kentucky at just four years old. Um, she spent most of her life as a caregiver, both to her own family and then also to um, enslaved people. Um, at, at her family homestead in um, in Kentucky, and we don't have any evidence from her. But you know, I I think we can we can draw upon evidence from others, and in this case, it's really problematic evidence because it's um it's a letter to the um, United Daughters of the Confederacy celebrating Mariah as a kind of mammy type figure. But I think if we read evidence differently in this case. Um, you know, then um, then we can we we can really bring this woman's story to life, and we can place her at the, at the center of a narrative, at the heart of history, as as someone who did really really important, um, performed a really important role on on this plantation, and and we not as a mammy, <laughs> um, you know, because we we move beyond that racist trope, but you know, simply as a woman who is put in a really, really difficult situation, being tasked with wet nursing, being tasked with raising her own children, bearing multiple children, you know, several of whom died. That's really tragic. We don't know who the father, fathers of, of, of her, if there's more than one father of, the, of her children are. She has to fa- feed all the enslaved children. She has to feed other enslaved people at the weekend. She has, a, she has to look after the fire. So she's hot in summer. Um, so, you know, Mariah has a really, really difficult life. And I, I guess um, I'm, I'm just keen on, yeah, I guess, centering, um, putting these, these women at the heart of our narratives, because I think their stories are so meaningful to people. Um, and I think I think that's you know, there's a place for that in history as well. <laughs> mm. Yeah, so kind of riffing off um, what Megan said, um, Megan said, sorry, obviously, there's a focus on the everyday, the menial, the mundane. Um, but there's a real sense of intimacy that comes through your work, both in the spaces you look at, um, you know, the, the quarters of the enslaved persons, um, but as well as their bodies, um, as both a site and a stake of power. So I'm wondering, what does this focus on the body, its functions and actions help reveal about the past and in this context, slavery in the American South? Yeah, I mean, here I'm thinking about Stephanie Camp's um, uh, really excellent analysis of bodies and, you know, bodies both as sites of exploitation and sites of pleasure. And um, yeah, literally in in the case of of wet nursing, this is is really important, um, you know, because um, 
wet nursing, um, wet nursing obviously is a really, really harsh form of exploitation in, in terms of women literally, you know, having having their breast milk sapped by white they're forced to care for. But then perhaps if we think about it in more Ill, intimate realms, and again, we might not have evidence. Camp's again useful to me here when she talks about, you know, thinking about history in terms of ideas about um, empathy, um, sympathy, speculation, imagination in the past. We can think about, you know, perhaps the, the private moments where um, women do get to breastfeed their own children at the end of a long working day, those quiet moments. Um, they're really important. Likewise, when it comes to um, feeding infants, whether they're one's own children or not, you know, the, the joy in giving a young child a, a foodstuff for the first time that they really enjoy um, is probably not, not going to be the green vegetable. But, you know, the, the, the pleasure that's, that's to be had, you know, in, in seeing the joy on an infant's face. And I think, um, again, I think sometimes this can be lost when we think perhaps a, a, about history at a more sort of macro level. We can, we can write on, on the very sort of meanings of these stories and, and these intimacies. So, um, I mean, you know, again, there's been some really, really excellent um, work here recently, especially, you know, coming out of Black Feminist um, Scholarship in the US as well. Um, Tyre Miles's work, um, you know, where she's um, all she carried, where she sort of traces the journey of objects through um, slavery um, into the sort of the, the era of emancipation and thereafter, you know, and thinking of thinking about the meanings here. I think, um, you know, I think our world at the moment is a bit depressing, but I, I think in terms of this history, you know, I, I like to think that there's so much to be celebratory about. The discipline itself is becoming, um, it's becoming more fluid, perhaps um, wider. Um, there's more, because of the limitations of archival evidence, people can be a lot more flexible over the meanings of history, how they interpret history, how they write history. It's become yeah, more inclusive, more diverse. And I think in that sense, there's there's a lot to celebrate about bringing this type of history to wider audience, even though a lot of this history is very difficult and challenging um, as a lot of history is. Um, you know, but, but, but that's important to see because that, that enables us to understand better. Yeah, thank you. Meg, do you want to jump in there? Um, yeah, um, I mean, kind of going off off the back of what you just said, um, and also when you mentioned earlier about the um, seeing this reflected in the pandemic, the sort of gendered care of the pandemic. Um, uh, obviously, your research focuses on the antebellum South, but have you uh, like doing this research during uh, like? the this sort of contemporary environment have you noticed uh any kind of reflections in in the debates surrounding care feeding and motherhood um in sort of our contemporary world yeah that's a, that's a really interesting question i mean i i guess um what the pandemic served to do was simply to bring um the labor of care perhaps to a sort of wider audience and you know um to think about the the, the onerous nature of of this care um yeah i mean it, it's not it's not a contemporary world but one um 
one point of comparison that I have been trying to think about um, because it's enabled my research, but I'm, I'm aware it, it can sometimes be sort of difficult and contentious to compare different regimes with antebellum slavery. So there's caveat there. But I think that um, in in thinking about um, in the early, early Soviet Union, and this came about just through a sort of casual conversation with a friend in the early Soviet Union, you know, um, the men in charge of the regime, you know, they they decreed that um, private kitchens, they use this term private kitchens, private kitchens were very reactionary and backward looking. You know, they, they kind of literally, they chained women to the home in a way that was that, um, was at odds with their notions of modernity, because I think a lot of the, this, uh, these ideas around communal eating are about modernity and the future. And so they, they tended to build their apartment blocks um, in the 1920s, 1930s, um, without individual kitchens and um, decreed that people had to eat communal style in canteens. Um, oral history here suggests that this food wasn't great at all and people re really didn't like, um, a, a lot of the time, they, they didn't like the communal canteens and they lamented the fact that, women lamented the fact that they couldn't cook in their own kitchens. So I think there is um, there is a parallel there in terms of thinking, um, sorry, it's not, it's not a more modern context, but that there is a parallel there in thinking about um, men in power in whatever regime we're talking about, dictating how women should feed and claiming that they know best about how women should feed. So you know, even, even even saying that, you know, sort of women shouldn't be in kitchens, let's liberate women from kitchens. You know, it, it's not always, it's not applicable to all women. It's, it's, I think it's a bit of a sort of second wave, perhaps an um, idea of what feminism should be, but how we actually extrapolate the differences between um, the labour involved in this care and the care as an as an expression of of love, it, yeah, is is something which I, I don't think we've got answers to as yet. <laughs> mm, thank you very much for that. So I think we're drawing to a close. So I'm just going to ask a final question here. Um, and you've talked a lot both in that answer at the start about um, sites of feeling as sites of control for these regimes, um, but they also seem to be in some senses, sites of resistance. Um, they're communal, people would communicate, they would talk. Um, so I'm wondering what kind of webs of resistance there are that are connected to food um, in terms of um, sub, like subterfuge or illicit economies of food on the plantations, or in terms of um, places of eating as places where resistance could be organised um, against the regime. Yeah, thanks for that. This was actually one of um, the best questions I had when I gave the talk, so I'm really grateful um, for it. Because, I, yeah, the, my, my immediate thought here is, like, yeah, well, yeah, well, absolutely, you know, we've got people eating together communally, you know, you have enslaved people gathering en masse and obviously talking. So we know that um, enslavers, for example, when it came to the religiosity of enslaved people, they tried to control that. They tried to limit um, large gatherings unless it was under the you know, white supervision. And they, they were very fearful. So I find I find it interesting then that at the same time that they want um, they want this control, they are actually permitting enslaved people to be together. We don't, I mean, thus far, I haven't come across, for example, in um, my published autobiographies or um, looking at WPA evidence as well, I haven't come across specific examples of people saying, yes, yeah, so, you know, and as we were eating, we discussed this, you know, 
that would be that would be fantastic but i think we can certainly make the assumption that um uh, sort of eating together facilitated um knowledge modes of resistance and we see some of this of course metaphorically through for example um enslaved people's folk tales you know the animal trickster stories such as brer rabbit we know we know that they're metaphors allegories of you know how to resist um one's enslavers while people are eating it you know, might have been the time sitting around a fire while people are likely to be telling these stories um and also as well you've got you know perhaps um the sort of the development of sort of you know inf informal markets informal economies um people trading people bartering people exchanging goods um sometimes as well um enslaved people with the produce that they've had from their gardens or patches they would travel to local markets um as well so food certainly enables um these wider networks i think where, where whereby people might have then I guess been more predisposed to think in a more dissident um or if not revolutionary then certainly in a sort of a more sort of radical or, or rebellious way about about questioning the regime but it's it's really hard to actually mm. down but we could we can certainly suppose that brilliant yeah so thank you very much for that emily it was a fantastic conversation and a fantastic talk that we had on monday um, and thank you as well meg for joining in um, so we'll just finish up there that was emily west and meg roberts thanks to them both and thanks to you for tuning in i hope you enjoyed stay well goodbye